Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Thank you, Sadie and Story and John for this morning's reading. And uh, many of you are familiar, uh, perhaps, with that uh, story uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, which is why we uh, talk about today being Palm Sunday, as Jesus enters uh, into Jerusalem for the final week, uh, kind of the climax of really what the whole uh, Scriptures uh, have been pointing to. And we've been looking at this over the last few weeks uh, from, the, uh, from different Gospels, uh, each Gospel with its own Emphasis. We started in Mark. Uh, we talked about uh, this sort of quick Cliff's Notes version of the events, and Mark was getting straight to the point. He talks about us belonging and being a part of the family. Uh, last week from Luke, um, and his emphasis on this the 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 poor and the marginalized and the story of Zacchaeus, and then today uh, from Matthew, who has his own way of writing. It's interesting that Matthew. Um, was a tax collector who turned and followed Jesus. And you think about this, you know, Matthew knew sort of both sides of the coin. He knew what it was like to be uh, sort of with and uh, work with the, the leaders and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the ruling sort of religious class in the day. He also knew what it was like to work and kind of facilitate between the two uh, and the Roman government and all that went along with that. And you can imagine, um, you know, what it's like when you really can't, trust anything that you hear. I know that's kind of hard for us to relate to. When you just can't trust anything that you hear from anybody and you sort of have to carve out this space in between and, and the best you can do is kind of hope that something will be different. And I think this is kind of where Matthew is writing from and then this event happens and what Matthew is writing is, is loaded. What we're gonna look at today is loaded with meaning and with um, it, just, it just undermines so much of what we normally and naturally think. Um, I don't know if any of you guys um, are golfers or not. Um, I don't really know many golfers. Um, I don't like to golf, but yesterday I watched the Masters. Anybody watching the Masters? Nobody? You know, Tiger Woods back, it's pretty good. This is, this is what happens with golf. Every time I watched, I watched it for a little while. I was out doing some yard work, came in, sat down and watched golf. 
Whenever I watch golf, this is what begins to go through my head. I watch them, I'm going, I could do that. <laughs> and I start thinking, man, I wonder if I took a couple months off, went to the driving range. I'm, I'm pretty, I mean, like how hard can it be? Do you ever find yourself, just they make it look so easy. And when you observe something, right, you get a perspective of it that has very little to do, or at least is certainly misleading to what is actually happening. A lot of us, this is our experience with the scriptures, with the Bible. We've seen or we've observed these events in Christmas pageants or Easter pageants or whatever your upbringing was. And the little kids are putting palm branches down in the road as Jesus rides by with this smiling face, you know, in the donkey. And we go, oh yeah, this is, and, and what we think it is, is not actually what it is. And so that's what I want us to kind of walk into uh, this morning as we look uh, at this extraordinary uh, encounter from Matthew. Matthew, um, if you ever read the Gospels, and you say, I'm gonna read the Gospels from cover to cover. Matthew begins like this. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, the mother of Tamar. Perez was the father of, you know, it just goes on and on. You're like, oh, I'm going to underline that and talk, tweet that out of my quiet time. Like, that's powerful stuff. I have no idea what's even going on. And Matthew makes some, he's, he intentionally chooses to begin his gospel with the lineage and the descendants of who would become Jesus, the King of David, to demonstrate, to point to some things. Matthew's the only one who talks at length about Herod uh, in particular ways. We'll find out more about that in just a minute. There are lots of clues in Matthew's gospel that give us an, uh, sort of a, uh, a picture or a, an idea of what he's pointing at, what he's driving towards as he talks about his gospel, fulfilling the prophets of all, what everybody had been looking for and longing for and hoping for this return of the king. And so as we uh, just sort of philosophically, whenever I'm... Um, prepare a message and we're talking about things. We kind of fly a banner over what we're doing and try to say, look, this is, this is, what, we are, this is what we're driving towards as we talk about um, the events leading up to Jesus. And this particular one, sort of what's flying over or sitting underneath is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter five. And we've read this every week. We'll read it again today. And it says that, uh, starting in verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. The goal for us is we want to see and encounter Jesus and who he is and what he has done in such a way that we are moved. That we're not just trying to get better or we're trying to be, we want, us, we want this to do something as his love compels us because we are convinced that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. And all of us, I think, know, if you've ever tried to do anything and it doesn't go like you want it to, especially when you're trying to do something on behalf of someone else, the easiest thing to do is just to give up and take care of your own doggone self, right? That's the temptation. And what we're constantly met with is that in an encounter with Jesus is that we are compelled to no longer live for ourselves, so don't revert back to that way, but rather to embrace and to pursue something else. And these ideas that we're kind of building off of is that an encounter with Christ changes us. It changes you. And as you are changed, that presence changes the world around us. That's how the world gets shaped and formed. And we impact the culture. It's, it's really present and it's current. It's, it's not these big giant ideas. It's doing the things in front of you every single day. 
And again, just for review, these foundations, uh, week one uh, from Mark and Christ, we are compelled um, as those who are approved and those who belong. We are part, we've been made, uh, brought into God's family through what Jesus has done. In Christ, uh, from last week, the story of Zacchaeus, we are compelled to pursue and to include. The beautiful thing about last week is when Zacchaeus was seen by Jesus, when Jesus identified him, he called him by name. He called him as one who is clean. That's what Zacchaeus means. And while the world thought, and Zacchaeus probably thought, I'm a con, I'm a cheat, Jesus saw who he really was and saw that everything that kept him from that was a corruption of his true identity of who he is made to be. And I think it's challenging for us to see that in others and to see that in ourselves. Um, but before Jesus, before we're about to see today, before this, we were locked in bondage to all the corruption, whatever we had. This is a freedom that was about to come into the world. And that's really um, what today is about and what I think this gospel, the, uh, uh, the story in Matthew really points us towards is that in Christ, we are compelled to love because we have been set free. The story of Matthew is, or the gospel of Matthew is about fulfillment, it's about fulfillment. And the way this is worded, that everything that happens in the old covenant, all the temple, all the things that happen, it's an outline. It's, you know, the, the Hebrews calls it a shadow. It's an outline that needs to be filled in. We need to see, that's what it means to be filled. That for us, there's these shadows and glimpses of God's image in your life and in my life. There are these places where you, you, you sort of bear or seem the way you're supposed to be but there's some voids and what Christ does, what God's love for us in Christ does is he fills us and he fills us with his grace and his mercy, which is ultimately his life. That we come alive with the life we were intended to live this eternal kind of life for which we have been created and, um, and designed. And so we get to this story. Uh, interesting enough, you know, Matthew, and again, this is all through here, but Jesus te uh, is teaching on the Beatitudes and then he uh, starts into the law. One of the things he says is, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. And a lot of people, especially today with all this going on in the world, they read Revelation and Daniel and they're trying to see how these prophecies are fulfilled. And what they're looking for is like Jesus fulfilling this prophetic puzzle to help us understand what is happening around us. And well, that's fine, I suppose. Um, I don't think that is what is intended. He's filling something different. He's fulfilling something very different that actually comes to us um, now. So here's what happens in the story. I was right, I've been thinking about this for about two days, how I was gonna draw this on the board, and I'm still not sure. Um, so if you're like one of those people who take notes and when I draw something uh, and you don't like it, you may want to wait until afterwards and decide if you're going to do this or not because this could change. Because I was trying to think like what's happening in this culture when we, when we sort of talk about this idea of fulfillment and this very, it's, it's kind of strange story that Jesus rides into town on a donkey and, 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 and the temple sat up on this mountain. Uh, and it was why it was known as the Temple Mount. And, and so it was a, it was a place uh, that had been constructed or reconstructed by Zerubbabel about uh, 500 years uh, before this. So there's this, there's this temple. I think my timing's right. I have to go back and look. 
there's this, this temple, and this is sort of the centerpiece of all of God's people's act. Is that like a good temple? You can see that? That's some old colonnades. Thank you. I need some affirmation here. Otherwise, I'm going to go learn to play golf. And, and so there's, there's all these rules and regulations, and it sits up on this mountain. And this particular scene, Jesus is coming from the Mount of Olives. He's going to descend down. And so there's these olive trees over here. I don't know exactly what olive trees looks like, but he goes in and somewhere in this little town between, he tells his disciples to go find a donkey. And if anybody asks why you're taking this donkey, you just tell them that your master has need of it. Like this is, this is so precise in how this unfolds. And we read this like, it's like this, you know, kind of Easter pageant with kids walking. I was like, and this is what's about to happen. So he comes in, he comes up this hill and he comes into the temple. Now, the temple was, uh, was sort of a hotbed, and in particular in this, this particular time, what was happening is this particular day and age when Jesus, or when Jesus was coming into the temple, they estimate that the population of Jerusalem was about 50,000 people, but everyone would come to celebrate Passover from the surrounding areas, and the population would swell in this particular concentrated area to about 150,000 people, or sorry, 150,000 additional people, about 200,000 people would show up into this really confined space. The temple uh, mount itself had been, uh, was expanded, and we'll talk about it in just a minute, but, but it was just just super crowded with people coming in to celebrate Passover. And so uh, this is what's kind of going on. And one of the things that I, I think is so important for us to get our head and heart around, really our, our heads for now, we'll get our hearts in just a minute, is the contrast between what was happening from Jesus' perspective, what was happening from the perspective of the crowds, what was happening in sort of the arrival of the king and what was expected in the greeting of the king. And so when I think about this, the first thing you notice is that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. It's important to note, Jesus was not the first king to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Did you know this? This is how Solomon came. He rode David's donkey into Jerusalem to ascend or to become the second king of Israel. The Jewish people would have known this. This was in their heritage. They would have known this. This is how their nation was sort of founded. They have these, I mean, if you think about the parallels to what we are experiencing today, it's, it's amazing at how, you know, biting the gospel really is to what we are, uh, sort of what we fight and hold on to. And so he comes in and he was basically declaring himself. He was reenacting or remodeling this entrance into there. And it's definitely talks about the fact that he enters on a donkey. This was to fulfill the prophecies in Zechariah 9. I don't have time to get into that today. But this, this, the donkey serves, and this is the way it would have been thought of. This is a peaceful rule by a humble king. And what a lot of us think, especially when it comes to politics or power or anything else, that we, this, this act of humility is not just a representation of how a king should be or how Jesus is. It's not a humble means to an end. Oh, I'll come in on a donkey. And just when they're all like, oh, what a sweet donkey. I'm gonna, boom, I'm gonna kill them all, right? Because that's what we would use it to our advantage, right? We would use humility to get up. I mean, think about this is how politics works today. We wanna make everybody think we're caring and compassionate. And as soon as we get that, we take advantage of it. And what Jesus models and this was so hard for all of us. And this is, this is what he models. He models, and the way I think about this is that Jesus wasn't graspy 
And I've, I've put this in my, um, my documents over and over again. It always underlines it in red. Um, but graspy is a word. And it is because we made it up. It's a good word. But graspy is when you're constantly trying to do things and get things from other people to make sure that people notice you or know how powerful you are. Or know. And what it says in Philippians 2, this way Paul describes this, that although Jesus who existed in the very form of God did not consider this status as something to be grasped onto. He didn't have to prove anything. Humility is this idea that you are free from taking from others. Do you realize the beautiful thing about this? You don't have to take something if you already have it. A lot of us don't realize what we already have been given, what we already possess, as we're constantly trying to take this from others. And therefore, he doesn't have to hold on to it. And when you don't have to hold on to something, guess what? You're free to give. When you begin to get these, this is exactly, this, is, this was not a representation this was a way. Jesus was modeling a way. I love this. I was, this is how a scholar Alistair Roberts describes this. I'll put this on the screen. It's got, I learned a new word this week, so I'm gonna teach it to you. It'll be fun, besides graspy. The triumphant entry manifests the coming and the character of the kingdom of God. It's both. It reveals the fulfillment of the story of Israel's kingdom and the realization of the old promises. It reveals a kingdom that does not arrive through human power or design, but as a quiet wonder and gift of divine ordering. You know what this means? It means it's significantly different than what you and I think it is. It reveals a king who is quite unlike the warring kings of the nations. Against this divine kingdom, all human kingdoms can be seen for what they are and their penultimacy, which means they're almost getting it right, but not quite. And their injustices are exposed by the light of this humble royal advent. This is what Jesus was doing. When he shows up, all of Israel thinks, oh my gosh, here comes the king. And they're thinking like Aladdin, right? Prince Ali, right? The strength of 10, like, it's this whole thing coming in. And he's like, no, 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 against this way, every other system of authority and power and influence gets exposed. And then he says this, this kingdom comes as the astonishing and wonderful unraveling of a divinely wrought eucatastrophe. What a great word. You can impress your friends. It's a sudden and favorable resolve. It's the opposite of a catastrophe. It's like this thing was gonna unravel and all of a sudden, boom, it becomes something extraordinary. So this is the picture. It unravels into this thing that we didn't expect. It's like the unraveling of all this where we try to hold on and keep it together. The unraveling is actually the thing that allows us to experience what it is 
that we are looking for. So this is what's happening. So now, so here comes the king. He arrives on a donkey. And you contrast that with the greeting, these people who are waving palm branches. And we think that palm branches, because we live on the coast, that it's sweet and they're in our backyards, they're nice, but palm branches were actually sort of a symbol of power and victory and revolt and revolution in this day and age. And it's interesting in your Bibles, it says that the people were chanting, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is interesting because they don't translate the word Hosanna in our English Bibles. It's a Greek word and it literally means save us. So the people are coming. Jesus is entering in on this donkey coming up. The people are all gathered around into the temple and they're going, save us, save us, save us. And what they mean is something very specific. For what you know, about 150 years prior to this event, there was another event that happened around the Jewish temple. And this happened because Rome came in and they decided they were gonna bully Jerusalem. They were tired of getting drama from them. So they came in, they invaded them. They killed tens of thousands of Jewish people trying to defend the t- temple and they're trying to get there, slaughtered them. This, the streets were filled with blood if you read the history, historical accounts of it. They went in and they decided they're gonna sacrifice pigs on the altar just as a way to put their thumb or their foot on their throat and say, don't ever mess with us again. That a, that a country, a, a, an empire would act violently towards another one. Like you see, this is nothing new, what we're seeing today. This is what happens when these power, when this, 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 is just the, this is the way the world tends to default to. And so what happened is uh, about 164, a guy named Matt, actually about uh, five years before that, so 170 something, a guy named um, Mattathias was a country priest. He comes in and they were making the priests offer sacrifices, these defiling sacrifices, just to keep just humiliating them. And um, uh, Mattathias, actually one of the priests is about to, be forced to uh, make a sacrifice and he kills the priest and he starts this revolt. Goes out, they're outgunned, they're outmanned. If you've seen Hamilton, outgunned, outgunned, outmanned, right? So um, y'all seen Hamilton? It's so good. And so um, they're, they're there and they use this, this guerrilla warfare. Anyway, they're, they're called, uh, his family is now known as the Maccabees or the Hammer. They come in and they kick Rome out and they win uh, at about 164 BC, about 150 years before this event. And as they're marching in, they are waving palm branches as a symbol of their defeat. And they're hailing, don't mess with us, don't mess with us. They stamped this um, image of the palm branches on their coins to memorialize this revolt and revolution and victory in now, then what happens is it always does. A decade or two goes by, people forget, and they're back underneath Roman rule again. And this brings us back to zero BC, or really about 20 years before Jesus is born. And what Matthew records is a couple of things. Matthew records that Herod comes into power and he's there about uh, 30 years 40 years before Jesus is born. And one of his jobs, because the temple was small, was Zerubbabel, so Herod decides to make it a little bit bigger. And he adds layers of this temple mount and doubles the size of it. And he makes it so that it reaches up to the highest 
heavens as an act of look at what we have done. And Jerusalem becomes this place of where the power center is the religious uh, establishment, the, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Roman sort of puppet government operating and keeping everybody at bay. And the citizens of this area hate this. So here comes Jesus on a donkey and they're waving palm branches. What do you suppose they want Jesus to do? To whoop Rome and take it back over. That's, that's, that's what all this meant. That's what all this meant. So you can imagine what happens whenever those in power got sort of this kind of bulge. They got a new offices, new place to live, new digs, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Their power is safe. And what happens whenever you sort of get power and there's a, at least a, a held piece, everybody tries to keep everything the same. Don't upset the apple cart. And so all the while, this murmuring. So Jesus, interestingly enough, one of the other things that Herod did besides build the temple in zero or one to two, BC, uh, one to two first century, um, uh, for the first uh, years, uh, he had all the babies killed um, in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. Why? Because he heard rumors that a king had been born. And 30 years, 33 years later, this king would come entering in and people were waving palm branches. And this is a real problem for Rome and for the religious establishment. So this is what's happening um, in here. First thing that Jesus does when he gets into town, you know what he does? This is all Matthew 21. He goes into the town, into the temple, and he starts turning over the tables. He starts turning the tables over. Verse 12 of chapter 21, Jesus entered the temple courts. And he drove out all of those who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. Pause right there. It's really important to notice. Do you know why he went to the place where they were selling doves? Do you know who bought doves? If you were doing your quiet time in Leviticus last night, you might've noticed this. But if you were poor and you couldn't afford a bull or a goat or one of the other animals, you would go and you would buy the cheapest thing you could afford, which was the dove. And you also think there's 150,000 people coming into Jerusalem. They don't have like all their animals show with them. Somebody just came in and they're like having to now make this exchange at the money changers to get, to, uh, to get some doves. I went to uh, another country uh, years and years ago. We got in uh, the middle of the night and there was no one in customs. And I was trying to get in uh, some, some equipment for one of our partners over there. And it was just two guys sitting there and they're like, oh, that'll be 500 bucks. I'm like, what do you mean 500 bucks? And they're like, it'll be $500. I'm like, well, can I speak to your manager? I was like, I guess it'll be 500 bucks. Oh, you got American dollars? Well, you got to change this. And the exchange rate was like so terrible. Like we got just completely ripped off. But we, what could we do? Because we were there, we had to get this done. So about all these people coming in, they've got to get two turtle doves to go in to offer the sacrifice. So the money changers are doing whatever they want to do. Because what are they going to do? So Jesus comes in and he flips this over. He's tearing the tables up and he says this. He said, it is written and he reads them from their Bibles. Don't you know that this is written in your Bibles? My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it into a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. When the chiefs and the teachers of the law saw these wonderful things that he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna, son of David, save us, son of David. The religious leaders and the powers that be were indignant. 
And they said, do you hear what the children are saying? They asked Jesus. And this is what Jesus says. Of course I did. Have you not read your own Bibles? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. All of this, all of this just reveals the subversive nature of this kingdom that has come. Jesus's message was the kingdom is at hand. It is available. And now he is coming as king, as king. N.T. Wright summarizes the gospels. And he says, the gospels tell the story of how God became king. How then does this kingdom work? Just keeps kind of unfolding. Comes into the temples and again, we could, we could spend weeks on this. He comes into the temple, turns the tables over. You've made this a house of, of, of thieves. You're, you're ripping people off. You're, this is, you know, and he begins to create her. And this is actually uh, tomorrow's reading um, for our, I don't think I have it here somewhere, uh, for your guide through Holy Week. So this will be tomorrow's reading, uh, the temple, uh, the, the temple and the tables, turning over the temple, uh, turning over the tables and the temple. Sorry, you know what I meant. But he goes on down and the next thing that happens is the next day, they spend the night after all this commotion in the temple. And the next day in the early morning, he's on his way back into the city and he's hungry. And it says that he sees a fig tree by the road that has all these leaves, but no fruit. And so he curses it and says, may you never bear, bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And his disciples saw this and they were amazed. and said, how did this tree wither so quickly? Like, this is, this is just, like, this is what happens when you read your Bible. Like, what is going on? What is going on? He, he turns the temple, you know, he he's, tears this apart. And then he finds this little tree out here and, and he curses it so it never bears fruit again. Because it looks like it's bearing fruit, but it's actually not. And then he says this to his disciples and they say, how, how did this happen? And this is what Jesus says in verse 21. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. Most of us have read this and what you try to do is to not doubt. You try to convince yourself, oh, Jesus is really true. And if I can not have any doubts about that, then I'll get whatever I ask for in prayer. And it's because we have like fundamentally we're watching the masters thinking, oh yeah, I know exactly how this looks. When all the while something completely different is required and necessary for you and I to understand this. The fig tree is about the failure to bear fruit. This thing looks like it's supposed to. It looks religious and it looks like the image, but there is nothing underneath. There's nothing that's nourishing. There's nothing that represents. There's no fruit underneath this. It's interesting because he says, based on this idea that there's, there's a power for us to curse by saying and using words. Think about your own life. Can you say something to someone else and cause them to wither just like that? Jesus says, you have this power. But it all depends on something else. Look at the next verse. If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask in prayer. If you have faith and do not doubt, these things will be true. You'll even say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea. What mountain do you think he's talking about? 
this mountain here. There's a context here. What he is saying, I believe, is that the mountain is this temple and the corruption of fruitless efforts but people are running around like there's a, there's a preservation of frustration that people will be content with. And says all this has to go and to be undermined. But what happens is this sort of low-lying frustration gets covered by all kinds of activity that we use to justify and excuse the fact that we aren't living the way we've been intended to live. There's, so here comes the king. And this story of Jesus on a donkey is about who rules the world. Not based on who's in charge, but based on who you decide to trust, which game you decide to play, if I can be so crass. There's one where power is held and you dole it out based on some kind of system of merit or justification or expediency. And this inevitably leads us to this kind of grasping that continues to create the separation that we experience on a daily basis. So there's another way that Jesus introduces, and this is what I find so compelling. Imagine that your efforts, that what you do are actually redemptive. If you're in school, when you treat someone kindly or include someone who is excluded, you're actually participating in something far more than just being kind. It's not just a representation. It's actually a way that causes something. Or the way you treat someone at work or the way you have a conversation that everyone else is avoiding or all the different things that we can use to bring reconciliation and redemption and restoration to the world. And listen, I'll give it it to you. Sometimes redemptive activity is just like my house. I clean the kitchen and no one can keep it clean. Two minutes after I clean it again. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Redemptive activities do the same way. You do something really kind and the whole world snaps right back to the way it was two seconds after you did this. But perhaps there are seeds that are planted. Perhaps somehow soil is shifted or shaped such that roots begin to take hold and grow. And this is why the gospel is coming to matter so much to me to understand the good news of Jesus as a kingdom that has been made available Here, there is a new available reality to us if we will learn to trust it. This isn't held by force. It isn't taken by force. It's experienced by faith. N.T. Wright says this, so when the gospels tell the story of Jesus as the story of how God became king, this wasn't just aspirational, It was an accomplishment. Jesus came to fulfill, not some kind of prophecy puzzle to figure out where we are on some kind of timeline, but he actually fulfilled a new way for you and I to live as a new humanity and to begin a new creation. This is why it matters. This is why it matters. I believe that this fulfillment, that in what Jesus did is a return to the way things were intended to be. And I believe that ushered in the beginning of the redemption of all things. And that's what you and I live in today. 
We live in this place and this space where God is working to redeem all things and return all things to himself. And he does it through us. We're going to close with this song and we've done it before, but it's just a posture of offering ourselves afresh to a rule and a way and a king who has come and who is king. It's not going to be king. He is king. And the lyrics say this, and this is again what motivates me almost every day, except when I'm watching golf. He says, Mark, your people with your presence. Would we be your temple is what it's saying. Would we be your temple? Make a place, make us a place where you delight to dwell. May we heed your hand's correction. Oh Lord, our shepherd, you do all things well. This is, an, this is a declaration that we are gonna trust him. We're gonna trust him. Your love as firm as it is tender. Your law is perfect and your judgment's true. And as we run to resurrender, I love this. You will restore what we return to you. You will restore what we return to you. This isn't about promising to quit cussing or drinking or whatever your thing might be. This is about returning something to the Lord and saying, under your rule, this becomes redemptive. Under mine, it becomes divisive or, or worse. Under your rule, you, you will restore what I return. If it's something I'm feeling inside, anxiety, wonk, whatever it might be, if I return this, Lord, you're gonna, you're gonna restore. I'm gonna return this to you because you're, you're good and you're kind and you're king and your rule is different. And our task is to trust him. The tempting thing for me, especially if you're not sure what you believe or what you believe about God, is to try to give you facts about, oh yeah, this is a real historical event. I could do that. But what I would just say is, you just, I would just, I would double dog dare you to just believe for a second. Do you know why? Because if you returned faith to Him, what might that do? And the second task is to return to Him every moment. The thing that I've been learning about the gospel more and more and more and more and more isn't that it's some kind of theological decision or framework to determine what happens to us in the afterlife, but it's actually what happens in the redemption of everything that God has intended. What that requires from you and I is to tend to what is in front of us, believing and trusting and with faith and with hope and with love. And I want you to just think about if today, tomorrow, in those moments that are so hard and so you just wanna throw up your hands, if you returned to that moment and He began to restore it, what might happen 
in the world around us. That's why this matters. Jesus came as our king. And he invites us to trust in his way and to experience this new available reality right here, right now. Father, I'd ask as we declare this together, we would really kind of feel, we would be compelled by your love because we've been freed. Free to offer you every moment, every angst, every fear, every person that we just can hardly take anymore, every argument, every pretense. If we would return those to you, God, would you be so kind as to bring restoration and redemption, our pain, our grief. God, just use these next few moments to call us, invite us. I lift all this to the name of your son, Jesus, who is our king. Won't you stand together as we conclude our time together?